You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national, international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Yes, I am shocked, 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 but uh, that's a different story. It's very hard to shock somebody who's nearly 70 who's seen most of it. But today we're going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous to the important to the esoteric. So hang in. Hang into the program. I reckon it's going to be a, a reasonably interesting program. You may not think that. You have the option of turning it off. I don't. I'm stuck here in the studio for the next 58 minutes attempting to cobble together an analysis of what's been happening in the world in the last uh, few thousand years, you know, <laughs> makes it difficult. So if you wonder what anarchism is all about? Anarchos without rulers. The anarchist struggles, the struggle to create a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? It's two simple concepts, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power, the struggle for participatory democracy. It's the struggle to hold wealth in common and share wealth and use it for the common good. Very simple concepts. If you didn't uh, get a uh, horns and a tail when you had your first or second AstraZeneca injection, don't worry, you're an anarchist. Tonight you will grow horns and a tail and you'll be dancing around the mulberry bush. Okay, you can see that I am shocked, shocked into uh, the 21st century. Now, then I'm going to start off with a, a very simple concept because communication, life is all about communication. You know, we're, we're human beings. We talk to each other. We communicate. We don't nudge, punch, urinate on the ground, hopefully. We talk to each other, okay? So today I'm going to look at COVID-19 as a 21st century parable for adults and children. Because I think what is exceptionally simple has been made exceptionally complex in the minds of a lot of people regarding the COVID-19 pandemic, which is now has been around over 18 months and continues to be playing, wrecking havoc around the world and including Australia. And our commiserations and support for all those people in uh, New South Wales who currently face, and there are many community radio stations in New South Wales which broadcast the Anarchist World this week uh, via the community radio networks. So uh, our commiserations for you. We've been through it here in Victoria. 
so we've got some understanding of uh, how difficult things can be, especially when governments uh, wash their hands of any responsibility of looking after the people who theoretically uh, they represent. So let's look at COVID-19 as a 21st century parable for adults and children. Think of yourself in a house next to a river and think of your neighbour in a house next to the same river, you know? You get on with your neighbour, you have difficulties. And the river is rising slowly. And you decide to sandbag your house. You're racing around, you're filling bags full of sand and you're placing sandbags around your house to protect your house and the people inside the house. Now, your neighbour has got a different plan. They've got a broom, and as the water starts lapping at the doorstep, they use their broom to brush the water away. Now, you know what's going to happen. Whether you believe in floods or not, COVID-19 or not, you know what's going to happen. The house that is sandbagged will be protected and possibly saved. The house that is not sandbagged will be flooded and the contents will be damaged and if the flood's severe enough, the uh, life and limb of the residents is an issue. As I said, this is a simple parable. Parables are about simplicity. So what has this got to to do with COVID-19? Well, COVID-19 is a virus. It's a virus. Simple. It's a virus, and it's all-encompassing. It's like a flood. It doesn't respect national boundaries. It's not doesn't care about nuclear bombs. It doesn't um, get frightened, you know, when you play loud music, death metal. doesn't get frightened, you know. doesn't care. It keeps rising and rising and rising and rising. Now, in Australia and the world especially in Australia in the uh, July 2021, we have vaccinations. People, some people, over 40, have access to vaccinations. Obviously, those under 40 currently don't have access to vaccinations unless they wish to take the AstraZeneca vaccination. Now, the sandbags is basically our vaccines. Because once enough people are vaccinated in the community, and that's about 80%, what happens is that the house is saved. The floodwaters recede. The virus is brought under control. It doesn't mean you don't get another surge or another flood, but the virus is brought under control. Well, our friends in the house next door who didn't bother to sandbag well, they've got a problem. Their house is going to be flooded. Now, we've got two options. We can invite our friends over and say, come in, or we can ignore their plight. And obviously there are people in the community who do not want to be vaccinated. And, and, you know, I personally respect that uh, decision. For whatever reason they've made that decision, that's their decision. And obviously there are consequences for all decisions we make. And there will be rules which will be put in place in the community to protect the community which will have detrimental effects as far as the lives of people who are not vaccinated are concerned, but that's their decision. 
But if we arrive at an 80% vaccination rate, what that means is that these people in the community will basically be protected from the worst excesses of COVID-19 because the variants which are produced by the virus in order for it to survive become weaker and weaker with the rise in resistance in the community. So what's the sandbagging got to do with COVID-19? Well, if any of you have been involved in floods, and I have, and I've, ha- and I've sandbagged a home or two in my time, you'll find that some of the sandbanks split open. They're sand, you know, they're useless. And that's what vaccination is about. Not everybody who has a vaccine is going to escape Scott 3. There are some people who have a vaccine who may get minimal side effects. Some people have more severe side effects. And some people, a very small minority, will die. It's a fact of all vaccinations. But the benefit to the greater society is not questionable. The benefit is there. Everything in life is a risk analysis. You're not going to cross a road in front of a truck or a bus careering down on you unless you want to end your life. You make a decision about when to cross It's the same with vaccination. There are issues, but those issues are secondary to the benefits to the individual, their family, their friends, and to the community at large. So if you see COVID, if you treat COVID-19 as a parable, a 21st century parable, it, it makes it exceptionally simple in terms of explaining to people how we can get on with our lives because there are people who've borne a huge cost because of the COVID-19 pandemic and I'm not talking about that small section of society that owns the means of reduction, distribution, exchange and communication who've made a killing, sorry for the pun, during the pandemic And I'm not talking about those large and moderate-sized businesses who've been able to survive because of the pandemic. And I'm not talking about all those public servants and people in uh, many people in clerical positions with full-time jobs who have been able to conduct their business and jobs from home and haven't taken a wage cut in any way. But the people in our society who've borne the greatest cost and continue to bear the greatest cost for COVID-19 are the very people who find themselves at the end of the line as far as gathering the crumbs which are swept away from the corporate table in our direction from time to time, especially when we start rattling the table. And we're talking about people who are on Social Security benefits, We're talking about people who are casual labour. That's about 30% of the population. We're talking about people in service industries. We're talking about small small businesses around the country in hospitality, 
in the provision of services who are consist- constantly closed down because of the potential damage of, of a pandemic if it breaks out into the whole community. So these are the people who basically have been bearing the cost. Look, I'm a health professional. I haven't borne any economic cost because obviously there's a greater need for healthcare during this period. I mean, you add a greater risk, but there is a greater need. So there's no economic cost. So a lot of people in the health industry, and it is an industry, whether it's public or private, have been able to get on with their work, have been able to economically survive, although they may be at a greater risk of, uh, or they are at a greater risk of uh, catching COVID-19. So think of COVID-19 as a house which is surrounded by water. Think of vaccination as a sandbag. Think about all these little sandbags which are, you know, stacked one on top of each other. Think of these sandbags as the individuals which make up our society. Now, obviously, when you're putting up sandbags, one or two will break open, but the majority will do the job. They'll protect the house, unless it's a hugely severe flood, obviously. But in most floods, they'll protect the house. They'll protect the contents. They'll protect the individuals who use that accommodation. And it's the same. So that's the analogy. It's a simple analogy. It's something you can share with your children. It's something you can share with people around you who are finding it difficult because constantly we have a great problem with communication, real problem with communication. Let's move on to something a little bit esoteric. As I'm broadcasting the program, it's the 14th of July, which is Bastille Day, which obviously many people celebrate as the beginning of the social movements which you've created the type of society we find ourselves in. Now, obviously, in France, it's a day of extreme nationalism. I usually, you know, I mention the Bastille Day, but what I really celebrate is uh, the Paris Commune in, in 1871, which occurred in the early part of the year, which was a great experiment, the first experiment in participatory democracy by ordinary people, inclusive participatory democracy by ordinary people around the world, and those people paid a, you know, an exceptional price for that struggle. But getting back to the Australian connection with Bastille Day... Now, I don't know if many of you know what a t- tumbrel is. A tumbrel is the cart in which the people who were going to be executed at the, at the guillotine were brought to the guillotine in. It was an open cart and obviously they were, uh, you know, booed and hissed by the surrounding population. And so what's that got to do with, with Australia and Melbourne? Well, when the Melbourne age was established in November 1854, a few weeks before the Eureka Rebellion. On its masthead, it had a tumbrel because it was a paper which was established 
to bring forward radical concepts and radical ideas. That masthead stood the test of time for over 120 years. Then the tumbrel was removed from the masthead. And now, those particular newspapers, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, the Canberra Times, have become little more than corporate mouthpieces. So that's just an interesting esoteric aside. As I said to you at the beginning of the program, stick with me. We'll go from the ridiculous to the sublime to the esoteric. So, let's move away. The pillars of most postmodern economic theories. You like that? The pillars of postmodern economic theory. Now, whether you like it or not, and most likely you don't like it, if you listen to the Anarchist World this week, we live in a society where every facet of our existence is totally dependent on economic theories. And the pillars of postmodern economic theory are based on the big five. Consumption, consumerism, competition, corporatisation and capitalism. That's the pillars of the post-modern economic theory. Post-economic economic theory is based on. And I'll go through it again. Consumption, consumerism, competition, corporatisation and capitalism. Whether you live in Udnadatta, whether you live in Swaziland, whether you live in Moscow or Beijing, these are the five pillars of modern economic theory. And let's underline the word theory. And we're told ad nauseum constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, 365 days a year, 366 in a leap year, that this is the only way that human beings can survive, prosper, function. So if you look at our culture, if you look at our social relationships, if you look at our economic interactions, if you look at our workplaces, if you look at our financial system, our government, our constitutional arrangements, they're all determined ultimately by these five pillars. Consumption, consumerism, competition, corporatisation, capitalism. And we're told this is the way forward. This is the way you eradicate poverty. This is the way you create a more egalitarian community. Unfortunately, 
There are a number of problems with this theory. It's not etched in stone. It's not the Ten Commandments which were etched in stone. These, this is a theory. So let's look at it step by step. As I said, we'll be, we'll, we'll be moving from the ridiculous to the more ridiculous. Consumption. Consumption. We have been reduced as a people to cringing, carping, complaining consumers. I'll say it again. Cringing, carping, complaining consumers. Life is about consumption. Not consumption to satisfy human need, whether it's physical or intellectual, psychological. But consumption based on manufactured need. So our society is a Ponzi scheme. The more we consume, the more fuel for the engine. The more fuel for the, you know, 21st century society. So a radical way of personally breaking down this megalith is through decreasing consumption. Decreasing personal consumption not only challenges the dominant economic theory that this country is based on, but it also helps the planet. Now, when people talk about green capitalism, green capitalism is capitalism. End of story. Based on consumption, increasing levels of consumption. So think about it, what you're consuming, what you need, what is a manufactured consumption? Do you really need to go down that path? The next thing I want to look at, the next pillar is consumerism. What's consumerism? Consumerism is the drive to commodify every human behaviour. What do I mean by commodify is give it a financial face, whether it's a sexual relationship, whether it's food, drink, assets. It's all about consumerism. It's all about we've become a society which is fixated constantly on a bigger and better block, a bigger and better home. A bigger, a bigger and better car. Now this, this is what consumerism is about. It's an ideology which drives the need to increase consumption for consumption's sake. Then we have competition. We're told that the only way, the only way that we can improve society and ourselves is through competition. Competition is the lubricant 
which ensures that society continues to get better and better and better. And what they mean by that is that it increases consumption and we become the ultimate cringing, carping, complaining consumer. And we're told that evolution is all about competition between the species. Now, obviously, life is not just about competition. If you look at the natural world, cooperation plays a significant role in the way the natural world functions. But in our society, cooperation doesn't exist. We have no economic models which are promoted like cooperatives and collectives which rely on economic cooperation to function, to provide essential services and goods to people. In a competitive society, you have winners and losers. And the greater the amount of losers, the fewer the amount of winners. And this is what corporatisation has been all about. It's this 21st century phenomenon where we see huge corporations being formed which dominate specific areas of human activity and dominate them not to provide a service but dominate them in order to increase profits. We see it in the financial field, the banking field, food, and the list goes on and on. It's corporations which have been the greatest beneficiaries of deregulation and privatisation and globalisation. They've become bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more powerful to the extent that they determine parliamentary policy. And then the biggest turtle, if you're into the turtle theory of the, uh, the world, is capitalism. Private investment for private profit. Capitalism, that's all it is. Private investment for private profit. Now, in any cooperative society, and human beings are, in essence, cooperative, things break down. But normally they just grind on. Look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Most people follow the rules, not because there's a cop at the end of the street, not because there's somebody with a submachine gun down the road, not because you're going to go to jail. But most people follow the rules because they think it's of benefit to them, their family, their friends and their community. It's the same in society. Obviously things break down between individuals. And the greater the inequality, the greater the need for the state to intervene, to ensure those who exercise power continue to exercise power. So these are the five pillars of postmodern economic theory. Capitalism, which is private investment for private profit. Corporatisation, which is the growth of unaccountable corporations to such a size that they determine Policy, parliamentary policy, they supersede governments 
competition, consumerism, this, this, this ideology that consumption is at the basis of every aspect of human happiness, whether it's travel, whether it's food, whether it's clothes, whether it's cars, and the list goes on and on. So what have we derived from these five pillars? What type of society have we created? Look around you. What type of society have we created? We've created insecure community. Although we're one of the richest nations on the planet, because these riches reside in the hands of a minuscule minority, we have some of the most severe psychological issues on the planet. And, th and that is, you, you can actually see that in the type of relationships which are formed in our society constantly. Relationships which are commodified. It's about a commercial interaction. It's all about commercialization. It's about a commercial interaction. Even on the so-called social media, the more hits you get, you get paid back by these giants because you've put eyes on the advertisements which they're selling. It's simple. Everything becomes commodified. So consumption, consumerism, competition, corporatization, capitalism. So what are the dividends? Well, I hate to say this. I hate to say this. The dividends aren't very good. We may have billionaires who are fighting amongst each other to get into space and commercialise space. And I have to laugh every time I see one of these people, you know, waste billions of dollars trying to uh, commercialise space. And we may have celebrities which people fawn over and think, oh, wow, 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 look at that person. They're a great singer. So what? So what? So what? Oh, they're a great sports person. So what? So what? What have they done for anybody or anything apart from themselves? So what? Oh, they give to charity. So what? if they don't actually pay taxes. So what? So where are we? Where are we in the 21st century? Where are we? We're not in a very nice place. Many people are not in a very nice place. They are in debt up to their neck. We have to pedal faster and faster to service their debt, although interest rates are historically low levels. When they increase, it's going to be a very nasty bloodbath. And if you think there's no bloodbath, look at what happened during the Great Depressions and economic collapses around the world in various parts of the world. Look at it. Look at the type of social movements, political movements which emerged from those collapse collapses authoritarian, intransigent, the list goes on and on. So what have we gained? Well, we have created a climate emergency. 
where we have given up our children and their children's future so that we can have shiny new consumer items. We've reduced the planet's First Nations people to push them to the margins, ostracise them. We have damaged the planet. And those of you who think that you can be able to colonise Mars, think again. If it costs $250,000 for an individual to go up and, you know, for five minutes in space and then come back again, think of who's going to go to Mars or colonies around the world, around the solar system or even the galaxy if planet Earth shrivels up and dies. How about human happiness? There's more and more and more and more and more of us living cheek by jowl, cheek by jowl, spending more and more time working for the man in order to pay the rent or pay a mortgage. I mean, the great benefit, we are told, is that now everybody can join the workforce that's right. Everybody can join the workforce. So the 1960s, one person working in a household, you could pay off a house in seven years in Australia. Today, you need two people working in a household full-time in order to service a debt. We've seen the explosion of a basic commodity, the commodification of housing into some type of investment dream where legislation is passed in Parliament which gives people an advantage who own more than one home. Where legislation has been passed through Parliament which allows people who own shares to get taxpayers' money, not only make money from their investments, but also get taxpayers' money through franking credits for owning for the owning shares. And then those of you boring, 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 boring people out there they're all worried about your superannuation. Think about superannuation. You know, the great equaliser, in inverted commas. The fact that you, after a lifetime of work, have to pay for your own old age, that the state cannot provide for, your, for you. And think about superannuation. The more you earn during your working life, the more money you've got set aside for your old age. And if you've worked hard all your bloody life in casual part-time jobs at a minimum wage, there ain't that much money in your superannuation account at the end of 50 years of working. So why shouldn't we have superannuation for all? And what is superannuation for all? Simple. We reclaim our natural resources. Take them out of the hands of corporations which produce billionaires and pay minimal taxation in order to exploit resources which theoretically belong to all of us. Isn't the concept of superannuation for all 
a little bit fairer and better than superannuation for a, a minuscule minority? Although we've all got superannuation accounts. You'll find at the end of the day that unless you're in a well-paid job and can take advantage of all the little quirks in the taxation system as far as superannuation is concerned, you're, not, you're going to be behind the mark. So if you think changes, radical changes to the economy, radical changes to the economy are somehow going to affect your future, they won't. Because whether you like it or not, we're all in the same boat. There's only one problem. Although they're all, we're all in the same boat, there's people on the upper deck enjoying the sun, eating the best food, swimming in the pool, you know, perving at every, each other. And the rest of us are downstairs in the galley pulling the oars. You know what? If you stop pulling the oars, those on the upper galley will soon feel the fact that they are not able to enjoy the lifestyle they're accustomed to and they'll scream and carry on and talk about communism and anarchism and socialism and thisism and thatism and the end of the universe and the fact that competition and consumption and consumerism and corporatisation and capitalism are the saviour of the human race. But at the end of the day, they'll have nothing and you'll have everything. It's the same with the analogy of the corporate table. There they are, sitting on their high chairs, dividing up the cake, we're milling around, occasionally we're shaking the table, a bit of a revolt here, a bit of a revolt there, a few more corporate crumbs are brushed off the table, we fight amongst each other trying to capture those corporate crumbs that have been brushed off the table, the table stop, stops shaking and they continue to cut the cake. Well, why don't we cut one leg off that table? What happens when you've got a four-legged table becomes a three-legged table? It collapses. Cake for all. So think about it. So if you think the economy, the struggle to change the economic relationships which are, which are dominant in this culture, in this country, on this planet, is not important, think again. Ultimately, we need shelter, we need food, we need human company, we need human interaction. But when we have minuscule minorities dominating, as we saw during the French Revolution, which we celebrate today on the 14th of July, not the French Revolution, which the French celebrate, the French government celebrates, but the French Revolution, which was based on removing removing a section of society which made life a misery for the majority. We always hear about the fate of the king who had his head chopped off and Marie Antoinette who had their head chopped off, but we never hear about the fate of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, hundreds of millions of people who have died in that struggle to ensure there's a little bit of equality in this country and in this, on this planet. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And a few other things you can do. YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You can join Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. We're not just a political party, but interested in much more uh, 
radical action. You can go to pipci, P-I-B-C-I dot net, download the application form, and hey, presto, before you know it, you're a member of one of the fastest growing political movements in this country. A movement which is dead against corporatisation, against privatisation, against globalisation, against deregulation for their sake, and the list goes on and on. A movement which wants to use the common resources for the common good. May sound pie in the sky, but it's better fighting for pie in the sky than being a cringing, carping, complaining consumer who's a member of the Gunner Club or a member of the Somebody Should Do Something About That Club. Because ultimately we need to remember we are the people we've been waiting for. We're not waiting for some religious guru, some great leader, some, you know, some dictator. We are the people we've been waiting for. Because ultimately, you can't rely on your religious leaders, your political leaders, your community, your so-called corporate leaders, your celebrities. They're all about maintaining the status quo. We're all about changing, radically transforming the status quo. Obviously, nothing is perfect, but that struggle is worth pursuing. Because if you don't pursue the struggle... It'll be the same boring crap day in and day out where people individually blame themselves for their own, for the theoretically their shortcomings, where they bury their heads, where they lose themselves in prescription medicine and, you know, non-prescription drugs, where we bitch and scrape and fight over crumbs which are brushed off the corporate table thinking that the person is a different colour, a different religion or no religion or, you know, different sexuality, different gender, that somehow they're the enemy. They're the ones we should be fighting again. Look at the USA. Look at Australia today. Look at all this garbage that goes on where we're divided and conquered constantly every day by the same crew. Think about it. I mean, ultimately as we saw during the French Revolution, as we saw during the Paris Commune, as we saw during the Spanish Civil War, as we saw during the Russian Revolution, ultimately, ultimately, we create the type of society we want to live in. And if you think it's easy, the struggle for change, it's not easy. It's hard. It's very hard. In the majority of cases, you fail, but at least at the end of the day, you can say, I tried. I gave it a go. I gave it a go. I tried. I wasn't a cringing, carping, complaining consumer. I was a citizen with rights and responsibilities. I tried to change things. There's no point sitting at home, clicking your computer, looking at all the wonderful things on social media, although we've got tons of crap on social media, you know, Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, public interest before corporate interest, you know, web pages, Anarchist Media Institute web page, uh, Instagram. It just goes on and on and on and on. But ultimately, it's feet on the street that make a difference. Whether it's Cuba, whether it's Burma, whether it's Iraq, What's Australia, whether it's the USA, it's feet on the street which make a difference.
Let's move on to the parliamentary cancer. Now, there is a parliamentary cancer, and it's called party allegiance. Because in Australia, we have a two-party, we have a two-party system. Now, we all jump up and down about the one-party system in, uh, in China. But do we jump up and down about the two-party system in Australia? See, the major thing about being a politician is your party allegiance. Now, political parties are formed on the basis of ideological um, positions and concerns. And unfortunately in Australia, because of the type of electoral process we have, which is a representative democracy, which is akin to the uh, two cells, a cell dividing in the human evolutionary process, as far as democracy is concerned. So the major political parties, their members who obtain the privilege of being in parliament are there because of the ability to be pre-selected, in the majority of cases 80% in safe Labor or Liberal or national seats, so their allegiance is not to the people that elect them. It's not to you. A member of a political party's primary allegiance is to the party which pre-selects them to stand in a relatively safe seat. Because there is nothing in the parliamentary process which forces a parliamentary representative, somebody you elect to parliament, to make good at any of the promises they made during the election campaign. I'll give you an example. In Victoria, during the last state election in 2018, um, I was involved in a very successful campaign for public housing. Now, you may think there was nothing successful about public housing struggle in Victoria, but we caused them so much consternation that the Labor Party, concerned about some inner city seats being taken over by the Greens, put out a policy of building 1,000 new, and the key word was new, public homes. Not much. It was a beginning. Two and a half years down the track, not one new public house or unit has been built. Obviously, there's been pledges towards social housing. That's not public housing. So they promised the electorate this, and they haven't delivered. They've got no intention of delivering. They never had any intention of keeping their promise. Because, you see, in between elections, you're basically stuffed. Unless you can create some type of mass movement or become part of some type of mass movement to put direct pressure on those representatives, they can basically do what they like in between elections. And at the next state or federal election, you can get the same bevy or a new bevy of promises, which are then pushed aside. So how do you resolve this problem in a parliamentary democracy? Well, it's a very simple way. We don't need blood in the streets, as we saw during the French Revolution. A very simple concept, the concept of 
the power of recall. If the electorate had the power to recall a non-performing representative in between elections, that person's allegiance and their political survival will, didn't, wouldn't just depend on their party support, but it also depend on the support they had in the community. And how do you result? How do you do this? Let's say twenty percent of the, say once during the term, if twenty percent of the population signed a petition, whether it's virtual or real, that they wanted a fresh election because they were unhappy with the performance of that particular person. That person may have been kicked out, or there may be a you know, there may be a new representative. But the fact that the the electorate can call for a fresh election in between elections would put that representative of notice that their primary responsibility is not to the party that pre-selects them for that seat, but their primary responsibility is to the people who elect them to office. Think about it. A simple reform. All it needs is a majority in both houses of parliament. A very simple reform. Now, I know I've been speaking today, I've said from Sublime to the Ridiculous, we've looked at the the pillars of postmodern economic theory, you know, consumption, consumerism, competition, corporatisation, capitalism, I can see your eyes glaze over. But the fact is, if people we don't understand the type of society we live in, nothing ever changes. It's like, you know, diagnosing an illness. You can go to the doctor, and if the doctor doesn't diagnose the illness, well, there's no cure, in inverted commas. You need a diagnosis. And the problem is that today, in Australia and most of the world, which is dominated by capitalism, private investment for private profit, but consumption, consumerism, competition, corporatisation, the problem is that if we don't know what the disease is, we don't make a diagnosis about all the issues which face us as human beings, both personally and as members of the communities, well, then things will never change. And that's what the purpose of the anarchist world this week is, is to get you to look at things in a different way and to get you to think that change is possible because, you see, cynicism is the aphrodisiac. Cynicism is the aphrodisiac of the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. As long as we remain cynical and believe that change is impossible, that making an effort to change things is a waste of time, nothing ever changes. They love cynics. They love people who don't participate. They love people, you know, who are lost in their own thoughts. They love people who are addicted to legal and illegal substance and prescription medicine. They love them. They love them. And they love cynics most of all because if we're a cynical society, nothing changes. Now, a little bit of humour, but it's black humour. Now, I feel very sad for all those Afghani people who supported the Australian forces in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. When push comes to shove, and many of them will be facing execution when the Taliban takes over the country in the next few months, if not the next year or so. The Australian government has done something really great. They said, yep, we're going to take some of you people to Australia. But they have made a division. 
they are not going to take contractors back. Contractors who work for the Australian Forces, they will only take employees. And what has been the Liberal National Party's economic philosophy in Australia for the last 40 years? Using contractors to deliver public services, whether it's social housing, whether it's social security benefits, whether it's public infrastructure, it's about the use of contractors. But when it comes to the Afghani people, especially those families that assisted the Australian troops in Afghanistan who now face possible incarceration and possible execution, well, unless you're a direct employee of the armed forces or the Australian government, we've washed your hands of you. We've washed our hands of you. We don't care what happens to you. If that's not hypocritical, I don't know what is. Think about it. The caring, loving, beautiful, egalitarian community we all live in. It could be that. We've let We've let things slip from our hands. For far too long, we've waited for a saviour, somebody to come in and save us. You know, we are the people we've been waiting for. Unless we are willing to take action, nothing will ever change. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Just like to remind people that um, the family of Mr Simpson who was based in Melbourne, an activist in Melbourne, will be scattering his ashes at 11am on Saturday the 17th of July at Fairview Park in Hawthorne, Melbourne, Melways 45B12. Short ceremony. You're welcome to attend. The park is near the tram stop 30 on Riversdale Road, Hawthorne. And why Fairview Park? And all the details are on the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. Why Fairview Park? Because... That's where you like to run. End of story. So, if you're coming, I'll see you. Don't forget the lunches at the lunch at La Porqueta on Thursday. That's tomorrow, the 15th of July, midday to 2 p.m. at uh, Raftown Street, Carlton. And the lunch at uh, Food Star in Dandenong two weeks later. Next week, I'll talk about the resurrection of the public interest before corporate interests. Uh, rallies and the resurrection of the public housing, everybody's business and to an extent public housing Australia rallies which will be held in the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au Where else do you hear economic theory being debunked and parables being put forth, except on the Anarchist World This Week. Listen in on the Anarchist World This Week, next week, on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen in. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction an analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national... So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty 
in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.